Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in New York today with Jeremy Hymans, who's the CEO and founder of Purpose. Uh, he's also uh, one of the most influential TED speakers. He wrote a fantastic article for on the Harvard Business Review on power. Uh, Fast Company magazine says he's one of the most creative people in business. But I also know from my university days, he was a fearsome uh, debating opponent. Jeremy, it's good to see you after all these years. It's so good to see you too, Mike. It's a real pleasure. Old friends reunite. It's funny. I feel in some ways that New York has become the new London, you know, the destination mm. for uh, Australians, the Australian diaspora. Absolutely true. It is the... Uh, it is, the, it is the destination for people who like pubs less, which is definitely me. <laughs> or, or like they'd be not cold. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you know we, in, in many ways, it, it, it makes total sense that you're, you're, you're running a company like Purpose today. Because I, I remember back when we were at university, um, activism was always in your blood and DNA. And uh, when I was reading about your background, I didn't realize you started so early. You were, you were actually sending out faxes as a child, stirring up trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was a very strange child, it might be said. But uh, you know, yeah, I was always uh, always had, even though I was growing up in the in the suburbs of Sydney, which you'd be familiar with, this strange idea that uh, I had more agency and ability to shift the world than I perhaps did. So you know, the story that I told of uh, you know the first Gulf War in '91, where uh, the the Iraq Iraqi foreign minister and the U.S. Secretary of State are meeting uh, on the uh, on on the verge of the first war, and I decided that if only I could get citizens from around the world to send faxes to the Intercontinental Hotel in Geneva where they they were meeting, we might somehow be able to stop the war. Now, obviously, that 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 wasn't the case. How, um, how old were you? That was time? about twelve or thirteen. But I had this whole career from the ages of about 8 to 14, 15, where I went around the world, I met Nobel Prize winners, I did went to different conferences, there was this kind of funny circuit of uh, child peace ambassadors toward the end of the Cold War that I somehow found myself My on. Goodness. And it was a really strange experience. And so, uh, so you were to geopolitics what child stars were to Hollywood. Exactly. <laughs> and now I'm a washed up, no, I'm a washed up geopolitics <laughs> child prodigy. <laughs> uh, what, what was your superhero origin story? I mean, was it your parents who kind of you know, were quite politically active. Uh, what, what sort of spurred a eight-year-old to, to be so passionate about what was happening in the world? Yeah, I mean, look, I think uh, it's an interesting set of things. Uh, my 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 parents both immigrants, hmm. and for, so for one, that always meant first-generation immigrants. So that always meant that I had a perspective that was um, that was quite different. So not just seeing Australia as the beginning and the end of. The world and the places to to you know to have an impact. So that I think already shifted my perspective. I think my father's origin story is a fascinating one. You know, he was born in an attic, uh, spent the first two years of his life hiding from the Nazis. Oh a Christian family took them in in the Netherlands. So uh, we like to say his story is Anne Frank with a happy ending. <laughs> and so he uh, you know he survived. Um, and then I think he took that in the most wonderful way of like, well, what can I do in my life and career to, um, to kind of 
preach tolerance. So he was a he he is uh, a documentary filmmaker. Um, and so I grew up around that. And so I think the two things that that was interesting for, again, you know, you, you realize it more in retrospect than you do at the time. You know, one, as a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker, independent filmmaker, every film is a startup. Hmm. So I wasn't used to, you know, a, a, a parent who went to work every day uh, and came back from the office uh, and, you know, got a paycheck. The, the process of raising money for a film is highly entrepreneurial. So I think that built in me this DNA of like, oh, the way, you, the way you work, the way you make an impact in the world is to start stuff. You know? And that was very much modeled by, by my dad and my mom, who also worked with him and, and, and alongside him. Uh, and the second thing was, I think, his commitment to social justice and those issues. And so, you know, he made the first film uh, about environmentalism in Australia in the late 60s. Oh, my goodness. Called What Have You Done With My Country in the voice of indigenous people. This was way before Peter Garrett. Right. Very exactly. <laughs> Peter Garrett was in short pants. You know, he made uh, a bunch of really key films about indigenous people in Australia. So that was really fascinating. And that my childhood was unusual in that, you know, uh, he made a film about um, the, the, the Australian poet, um, Ujuru Knuckle, who was born Cath mm. Walker. Um, uh, and so we would go um, in, the, in the summers to her to her place in Stradbroke Island and have this totally different experience that most Australian kids living in the suburbs would have, which was really interesting. So I think he definitely influenced me. That said, I was always more political and more self-directed uh, and slightly more manic about it than, than my parents ever were. So I, I was definitely not, um, I definitely didn't have stage parents. In fact, my parents were trying to rein me in to help me have a more normal childhood. And I was, uh, you know, I had my own notions and ideas. Hmm. Uh, it was a fantastic article. And of course, the TED talk about, about new power, uh, which is also, I guess, the title of your upcoming book, which is coming out, is it next year? It'll be coming out next year, published by, uh, by Penguin Random House. So what was the inspiration behind that? So, um... You know, I think having been a practitioner in this space for a long time, mm. right? Thinking about how you build movements, how you create new forms of power, right? Because um, GetUp actually had more people subscribe to it than membership of all the political parties, right? That's right, yeah. And so, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be how come, you, how come you're not Prime Minister of the country? <laughs> <laughs> I, not, I guess that's the job you don't want. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I think I, I, I can't think of too many more, uh, more, dire, more dire predicaments sometimes than being uh, a, a politician. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, I... Uh, I sort of had this experience of building these social movements, using mm. technology to mobilize people, thinking about when those models worked and when they didn't. And at the same time, doing what I do, I'd be asked a lot kind of questions like, did Twitter cause the Arab Spring? And uh, that would be a bit frustrating because to me, the, the dynamics were not about changes in technology, although technology was an important enabling element. They were about shifts in power. And they're about ways in which um, more and more people were finding new ways to self-organize, to exercise their own agency. The CIA might disagree with you. The CIA might disagree, indeed. <laughs> disagree with me on many things. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so I got together with a, with a colleague, um, a really interesting guy called Henry Timms, who had been working in kind of adjacent spaces and most notably had started something called Giving Tuesday, which has become a big philanthropic movement hmm. here in the US and, and all over the world, which is one day after the orgy of consumption that happens here in the US around Thanksgiving, oh, yeah. um, where you give back. So there's, th there's, uh, there's Black Friday, there's Cyber Monday, and now there's Giving Tuesday. 
and Giving Tuesdays become a real phenomenon. And, and a lot of that was by creating kind of an ownerless campaign. He didn't own it. No one owned it. And yet he, he's caused this nine-figure increase in philanthropic giving. So sort of an emergent phenomenon. It was really an emergent phenomenon, but carefully stewarded by, by him and some others. Right. And so we got together and sort of start to put this together and think, because it also seemed to me that many of the dynamics that we were seeing in politics were also you know, being seen by Henry in philanthropy. We're also showing up in these new peer-based business models like Airbnb, using many similar principles um, and dynamics. And so we kind of put it together and created a language and a frame, this idea of old power and new power, um, that would help to distill these shifts and hope that people could have a more sophisticated discussion about what was actually happening in the world. And uh, In essence, what is the difference between old power structures and the new? Yeah, so, you know, very simply, you could think of old power as being held like a currency. Right. So the more of the currency you have, the more powerful you are. So naturally, what you want to do is hoard that currency. Because it's a zero-sum game. Right, exactly. Like, if I have more power, you have less. Exactly. So you hoard it, right? That's the, 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 the logic of old power. With new power... Actually, hoarding power doesn't necessarily help you achieve intended outcomes better. Hmm. You're actually better to think of power as something that is like a current. It's something that you channel, right? Uh, and your ability, your capacity is to mobilize, uh, steward, channel the power, the agency of many. And that's where you get your power from. Right. And so if you think about like Facebook, right? If Facebook had no one in it, if Facebook didn't have a large and active user base interacting with each other it would be an empty vessel so mark zuckerberg would be would be uh you know still in his sweatpants uh you know somewhere uh and not and not who he is or worse if they tried to pay people to behave like teenagers right right (laughs) exactly indeed and so you know that is um so so new power is this capacity to channel the power of the crowd but zuckerberg doesn't own the power but he owns the platform he owns the platform so this is where it gets interesting right so Zuckerberg's uh, company Facebook is undoubtedly a new power model so we Mm. define new power models as being based on uh, mass participation or peer coordination right which which is both in the case of Facebook Um, uh, now he's got a new power model but does Facebook have new power values so in the HBR piece, we sort of delineate as well what right. some of these like early 21st century values are. So what are the beliefs associated with these, um, these new structures? And what you might find with Facebook is that actually it's very old power in its... Right, in its, they've co-opted the new power structures. Right, for, but, but very much you know, hoarding that power up at the top of the network, not really pushing it down to the participants. Well, you could argue um, Uber, Uber potentially is going to play out the same way. Well, I think it already is. I mean, if they're yeah. going to replace all their drivers, you know, with self-driving cars or... Exactly. Uh, th- that essentially that they've co-opted these, these you know, sharing structures to then consolidate. Precisely. So actually, it's a lot of the story of, of, of the book that we're writing at the moment, uh, Henry and I, is that story. Right. The story of new power models um, being uh, used actually to create even more powerful... Uh, platforms and intermediaries. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, you remember the early days of the web where it was sort of like this, you know, uh, wonderful Cambrian explosion of ideas right. and uh, independent publications and zines and yeah. uh, 
and, and then, you know, there's a really interesting uh, work done by network theorists like Barabarasi and stuff who said that essentially the internet's a scale-free network, that right. the logic is actually towards concentration to a handful of platforms. That's right, and that's absolutely what, what has played out, right, because yeah. of the power of network effects and, and all of those things. So, yeah, so that's really interesting. So we're trying to reckon with what that world means. Hmm. So what does it mean when you have a world where... Because it isn't that the people in these networks aren't necessarily deriving benefits. It isn't necessarily that the people in these networks aren't actually being having more agency and participation than before. It's just also true that the platforms themselves are very powerful and are in fact more powerful than the old middlemen. So, you know, you think of Facebook and you think how much of what we would define as speech is now happening on that platform. A right. huge proportion of speech. Um, in the old power world, you had these newspaper barons who sort of, you know, regulated what we saw and regulated media, um, but they were far less concentrated than Facebook. Yes, is, right. So, which is why, when this debate about whether or not Facebook was suppressing conservative trending right. topics becomes such a hot topic, right? exactly, because it's actually a much bigger story than that. The story isn't really um, the uh, the obvious and intentional um, manipulation. Of views, although that's certainly a risk and a possibility. It's about the fact that that algorithm that regulates what it is that we see, that domain yeah. in which most speech happens, is utterly opaque. Yeah. And we don't control it, we can't regulate it. Well, we have a, we have a kind of a fiction that if it's an algorithm, it's neutral. Because right. we think it's a machine, we forget that the machines were built by people. Absolutely, precisely. And so that's, you know, that's a really interesting part of this new world. So we live in this funny time where there's a lot... There is no doubt a lot more democratization, a lot more participation going on. You can point to very hopeful manifestations of that, but you've also got um, both increased disintermediation and increased concentration yeah. um, of power. And so that's part of what the book explores. So unfortunately, the people with the capacity to channel the power of the crowd, to channel the power of, of, of mass participation and peer coordination, those people are going to themselves become incredibly powerful in the 21st century. Yes. And that's becoming, in many ways, the central skill that you need uh, in order to be, uh, you know, in order to thrive. So the book is partly actually about helping to teach people, uh, you know, what are these new capabilities? What does it mean to lead in a new power way, to spread an idea in a new power way? Um, and then to hope <laughs> that uh, use it for good. some of the elites that emerge <laughs> use it for good. Yeah. One area where we definitely could use some action is something given the light of the terrible events mm. of, the, of, of the last few days, uh, the, the tragedy in Orlando. Um, it just seems like we are in an endless feedback loop of outrage uh, and then you know, non-action when it comes to gun violence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you yourselves, you know, with purpose, have been quite involved in, yeah. in, in, in trying to make this, uh, you know, this issue be resolved. Yeah. What do you think at this point has to be done to channel new power to lead to a better result? Well, you know, I think one of the things that's striking about the NRA is the NRA um, has incredibly powerful, uh, an incredibly powerful mass movement. It, it is, it is a, you know, a group of three or four million paying members. Uh, and then a wider set of people who share their views, who have a degree of, fr of fanaticism and intensity about 
the, 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 the Second Amendment and around gun rights, that simply is lacking on the other side. Do you think if you asked every single American whether they should ban guns, if it was a straight-out vote, right. how do you think it would fall? Well, I mean, there's a lot of data on some of the more sensible gun safety-type uh, uh, measures. So, for example, background checks. 90% of Americans support universal background checks. And yet, that couldn't pass the Senate. Hmm. Why? Because that small minority of 10% are incredibly powerful, they're well-organised, and frankly, it's their number one voting issue in a way that it isn't necessarily the number one voting issue for that 90%. And that's the challenge. So there's an intensity gap on the issue. Uh, There's also simply a, you know, there's a a sense of being outgunned by by an organisation like the NRA, which has, has developed this brand that it is feared. It's feared by politicians, um, and it's ruthless. It will not. It holds the line so ruthlessly that the reason that it, it ends up being opposed to these completely reasonable-sounding things, like it's absurd that you know people on the terrorist watch list <laughs> can buy guns. Like, I mean, you know... It, I mean, on the face of it, that doesn't sound like a great idea. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so crazy. And yet, the, the, their posture is, we will, we will give not an inch. Oh. So that, that hardline posture has actually been a very effective strategy because they back it up with a ruthless... They will get politicians who... Who back, who back down on guns and they will do recall elections and they will go after them and they will put money behind it. So, you know, they're, they're ruthless. So, you know, there's a big challenge there. I mean, this is one thing I, I always struggle with is that I, I feel like in many ways people's participation in issues these days, their awareness is higher, but they think by clicking like on something on Facebook that they've actually participated in the movement. Right, right, right. Uh, versus someone like the NRA or other interest groups right. who are... Uh, more opaque in their methods and there right. may be less actual people who are behind them right. but they're very politically effective yeah well I think that actually the NRA is a brilliant combination of old and new power Right. so the old power is they've got the gun manufacturers um, who, uh, who who put millions tens of millions of dollars actually um, it's like, like, big, like big tobacco yeah so they've got the, they've got old power there right they've got big money big economic interests but they've also got new power right. they have a, a whore, an angry horde <laughs> That, 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 that advocates for this. And so um, that's a very, you know, this kind of blended power model where you know how to, where you've got a, a, an engaged crowd and you've got, um, you know, a lot of concentrated economic power and political might and the ability to make shady backroom deals. That's, that's a very potent combination in the early 21st century. You know, we were talking about the Arab Spring earlier, and it, it seems in some ways the, the sins of the fathers are, are back to haunt all of us. Because when you look across the world, the rise of you know popular demagogues and uh, populism, and yeah. you know, it's not just Donald Trump. I think this right. is sort of a global virus now spreading. Mm-hmm. Uh, partly, I think, in, in many ways, because of social media, uh, pe- people. Uh, I think these politicians have, have co-opted these platforms that really favour. 140 characters of, of vitriol rather than policy. Yeah. Uh, so how, how do you combat that, given that they're using the very tools of change against... Yeah. It's such an interesting question. I mean, there's really no easy answer. Um, the, the, the tools themselves are, are neutral, right? They don't, they, don't, uh, they don't express a preference. Now, well, they may, as we discussed earlier, not always be actually neutral. But, you know, there's nothing to stop... Um, anyone using them. Anyone using them. So that's a structural challenge, right? 
And you look at ISIS and what's so interesting about them is that they are propagating their violence in such a decentralized, open source way, right? And they've created essentially what we would call a meme drop, a set of ideas, assets, images that people take and, you know, propagate without them having to do almost anything, hmm. um, you know, centrally to, to manage that. And then you have people like like uh, like the, the Orlando shooter who are self-radicalized, you know, who are, who are adopting the, 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 the language and imagery um, and, and being inspired by it. So it's tough. I don't think you can, you don't, the answer is not to take, take away the tools. <laughs> yeah. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you know, I, I am fundamentally optimistic that, um, that, that these tools have also been an incredible um, agent of sort of normalizing uh, more enlightened views. So you think about LGBT rights, you think about race, gender, sexual orientation, you know, the things that are going on um, right now with the presidential election, these, these issues, um, there are, there are I, I ultimately think that, that, that a free debate, you know, is going to lead to better places on average than a closed one. Right. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you uh, depends on whether you're a fundamental optimist or a pessimist <laughs> about that. I, I had uh, some months ago on this show, uh, Harper Reid, you know, who mm-hmm. uh, heavily involved in the Obama's re-election campaign. Yeah. And it's just curious to kind of contrast the use of data and social media in the last two elections where you actually had very smart people, data scientists, using it to target specific messages to specific people. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure Trump doesn't actually have a data team no. or a social media team. He's got team. a very weak one. He's just a force of nature on right. social media. Right. And so it's almost like now you don't need strategy. It's just easier just to be outrageous. Well, that's right. Well, certainly Trump, um, you know, within the context of a, a Republican primary, right, right, where you, you don't need to turn everybody out, you need to turn out a bunch of very intense... Uh, people, that strategy was highly effective. So you don't and think going into the actual election? I don't think that's going to work very well in the general. Why? Because the the nature of the electorate is so different. So, you know, Trump had, I think it was 13 million people who voted for him. Right. It might have been 16. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it was 13. He'll need um, 65 million people to vote for him. So you said actually the key thing that Obama's president. teams did in both elections was actually getting people to vote. Well, yeah. So here in America, yeah. you know, yeah, that's a big dynamic, right? Yeah. And so uh, I think it's 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 a lot harder to to get 65 million people out um, than it is to get to get 13. And so I don't know that his bluster, what worked in the primary, I don't think will work as well in the general. It doesn't mean it won't work somewhat, and it will get those same people motivated and a, and a layer of people out from them. Um, so I don't think the lesson of Trump is don't be strategic about your use of social media. I think it's that um, that that his strategy of, of outrage sucks so much oxygen out of the room. Mm. And in the context of a primary for the Republicans where there were 16 candidates, that kind of kept him front and centre and kept that 35 to 45% of the vote that he needed. And so there was no one else that could emerge as a viable challenger. Right. So that was a great strategy in you know January, February, March. I don't think... I certainly hope it won't be a good strategy in October. You are an optimist. I am an optimist. <laughs> you know, whether you're looking at Trump or, or, or the issue of guns, uh, I mean, one of the things that you do at Purpose is provide some of the infrastructure for revolutions, <laughs> uh, I, I guess, so to speak. 
what does that look like? I mean, if you want to start a, a popular movement, if you feel outraged by something and you mm. want to you know, help people, what are the moving pieces that you sort of generally need in order to be successful? Yeah, well, I mean, so we, what we do at Purpose is we take on big issues, national, global, uh, here in the US and around the world, and we think about um, you know, new ways to mobilize large numbers of people, um, to shift public narratives, hmm. um, which is often so critical to change. Um, and uh, there's, you know, increasingly an art and a science to doing that kind of work um, that, uh, as we talked about, lots of actors, good and bad, are, are using and, and deploying. Mm. So what does that mean? Well, uh, from a skills perspective, we bring together um, people who are uh, campaigners, who've got that background in moving people to action, with creatives um, who are masters of storytelling and narrative because at the end of the day, you know, if you want to shift someone's views on refugees, you don't give them a bunch of statistics. You tell them a, a story that will, will right. change their hearts and minds. This is basic stuff, but people, especially progressives, uh, unlearn that lesson every, all the time and, and keep forgetting. What way is um, that? Is it? Well, because I think that, you know, you sort of... Because you think the, the story is so intrinsic in their own mind, they forget that other people Well, don't. no, I think it's more that they... I think a lot of um, progressives are, you know, rational. They're, they're like, well, if you just tell people the facts, right? If you just tell people that, you know, we're going to have... Uh, you know, sea levels, sea level rise of this by this time, uh, they'll get it. Or you know, particularly like scientists, right, and right. and technocrats and and experts. So their their first instinct isn't that. I mean, we worked a lot on the uh, you know on the refugee crisis, the Syria crisis. You know, and I and the most potent thing we did on Syria was we found a amazing group of volunteer search and rescue workers who were pulling people out of the rubble and saving lives in Syria. And uh, these guys were putting themselves at great risk. They were just ordinary people unarmed who were trying to save the lives of people in their own communities. And uh, when we met them, they were called the uh, Syrian Civil Defense Force. And we worked with them and said, oh, why don't, you know, like, the white, you wear white helmets. And, and so the world should know you as the white helmets. Um, and telling the story of the white helmets and helping them tell their story has just been really impactful in ways that us giving people the statistics on the number of people killed by barrel bombs and the Assad regime and this and that would just never have done. And yet you showed people a video, as we made, of, um, of, a, of, a, of a white helmet, a young man, talking about a rescue he was involved with, pulling a two-week-old baby boy out of the rubble and saving his life, and then showing that footage. Uh, and, you know, that... That changes even the most hard-nosed technocratic policymaker. So, is it just that we're, we are wired to understand the world through stories? Clearly. I mean, that's yeah. exactly why. I mean, stories kind of um, are much more memorable to us. They're much mm. more available to us than, than, uh, than facts. So, you know, so storytelling is important. Um, the capacity to mobilize is important. Technology and data, as you mentioned earlier, are incredibly important. So we have a team of people who are at the cutting edge of that. And I think what's interesting is that that world is changing so fast mm. that the reason Purpose needs this infrastructure for movement building and public mobilization is that the things that worked five years ago aren't working now. So if you have a model that, you know, is 10 years old, chances are it's it's much less effective. So our role here at Purpose is to constantly be looking for the new model, the mm. new tactic. Um, so it's creatives, it's political organizers, it's technologists and data people, people who think about brand, um, and people who are experts on those issues. Uh, companies 
even though they may not go to the extreme that you have yourselves become a public benefit corporation, are, are trying to have a coherent policy around corporate mm-hmm. sustainability and mm-hmm. social responsibility. If you're a leader of a company, what lens should you look at when you're trying to think about this? Yeah. Well, look, I, I think my, my advice on this is always the most important thing is what is the core economic engine of your business doing? So if you are a soda company, right. your core economic engine is harming people. Right. End of story. Turning sugar into profits. So I, exactly. <laughs> I don't care whether you also have a fabulous program that invests in, you know, um, not that I don't care, but I'm less interested in the fact that you don't have a program, that you have a great program that invests in the people in your community, or if you're Coke Brazil and you invest in the the, the favela communities that you serve. So you don't think casinos running gambling helplines <laughs> makes, up, makes up for the right. karmic imbalance? Those companies have enormous social legitimacy that I don't think they should have. Right. I mean, I have quite strong feelings about that. But the, the point is that you know, what matters is fundamentally what your business is doing to the world. Is it harming the world? Is it helping the world? And if your business model isn't obviously in one category or the other, then what are the ways that you can, you know, that you can really transform the impact of your business? So you, right. you take a company like Unilever that we've worked with. You, you know, Unilever is, you know, some of its products are probably, many of its products are like necessities, you know. So shampoo, you know, cleaning products, you know, basic food items. Some of them might be harmful to the world. Some of them might be a net benefit to the world. So in that context, what what, what do you do as Unilever? You try to really, you know, reduce the carbon impact of what you're doing. You try to maximize the way you empower women in your supply chain and among your consumers. And, and they're doing some really interesting work in that, in that direction. Um, if you're, you know, Exxon, then, you know, you should be focused on how you change the business that you're in. Right. So, so it isn't just about coming up with a clever story and marketing. It's really not. I mean, I think it's most the most important thing is like, what is it that you do? <laughs> yeah. And and you know that um, runs afoul of some of the um, the sort of conventional wisdom in this space. If you if you have which the holds benefit, that constant. Yes, absolutely. And if you have the benefit of starting with a clean sheet of paper, uh, right. And you want to design a company that that you know does well by doing good. Right. Uh, how how do you do that? Well, you know. Again, I think you, you start by thinking, what's the business that I can build that the world needs? Right. And what does the world need, right? The world needs more great electric cars. The world needs more, you know, the world needs more uh, alternatives to industrialized food that are scalable and that can feed lots of people affordably and not just uh, a few elites. Uh, the world needs, you know, better healthcare and uh, financial products for poor people. You know, I could go on. So those are all great businesses you know, that people you know, can and should and are starting. Um, and so that's where I think you've got to start, right? Not like, I'm going to do whatever I do to make money and then on the side I'm going to like, I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to like neutralize uh, a little bit of that with some, with some donations. That's, that's not enough. Well, Jeremy, it's, it's wonderful seeing you again after all these years. And uh, it's, of course, it's fantastic to have you on the show. It's a real pleasure, Mike. Great to see you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.